Ladies and gentlemen, we have another incredible guest for you today on the No Limits podcast. Today, my guest is Alex Kroll. Now, I'm particularly excited about speaking to Alex today because although we have met in the past and we are friends, I don't actually fully know Alex's story. Um, What I do know is that he is a, a former Royal Marine. He is now in a wheelchair due to a life-changing accident. But I don't know much about that accident, which is why I'm especially excited to talk to Alex today. I know he's an incredible person. He's incredibly positive, uh, enthusiastic. He lives life to the full. He doesn't let life in a wheelchair hold him back from anything. And that's what this podcast is about. That's why it's called No Limits. I want to share incredible stories of incredible people with an incredible audience. So, I'm going to learn a lot today. I hope you're going to learn a lot today. And as always, if you've got feet, put them up, sit back, grab a cup of tea, and enjoy today's episode with Alex Kroll. Alex, welcome to the No Limits podcast. Appreciate your time, mate. Thank you for coming on. What's happening in your world? Cheers, Mark. Yeah, well, like most people, I've got a lot of time on my hands at the moment. But uh, no, it's nice to uh, nice to connect and nice to come on your podcast and yeah, chat. And I appreciate you giving up your time. I know we've all got an abundance of time right now, but we chatted on air, uh, pardon me, we chatted off air just now about the kind of things that I want to get out of these podcasts and why I invite people like yourself on. And it's because I want to dig into people's mindsets. I want to talk to people who have faced real challenges in their life and overcome adversities um, and effectively live a life, as corny as it sounds, with no limits and and that's what you do so again i said off air just now the great thing about this for me is that you do most of the work you know what i mean because you got the story and i want the listeners to hear your story and take as much as they can from it so with that being said let's start at the beginning and it's, it's completely up to you where you want to start uh it's completely up to you where you want to finish but Take us through it, mate. Take us through your personal story. Okay, so uh, so I'm going to start off right at the beginning. So I, I would say I had a normal, very normal childhood. You know, dad was a builder. Mom was housewife with 10 jobs. And she had 10 jobs out left, right and centre. And I was number three. In the, in the, I was the third son. So... Uh, kind of left to my own devices in a lot of ways and I think I was just highly strung as a kid I think I think nowadays they call it ADHD but I think then you were just a boy with bags of energy bags yeah. of beans so I was constantly you know I think I was constantly on the move and then as I got to a teenager she kind of put me into everything so I was in the scouts I was in the cadets I was in the youth club and I was I think education-wise, I was just plodding through, just trying to trying to do the best I can, and um, I was just yeah very active, you know. I, I needed mm-hmm. I needed focus and determination in my life, and um, 
I think I was just a bit lost in terms of career and what to do. So then I got to my teens and I was leaving school and I didn't know what I wanted to be or what I wanted to do. And I had no burning desire to join the Marines at this point. I had a vision that I was going to be a fireman. And so, so at this tender age of 16, 17, I went to the local fire station and I was speaking to the guys. I was like, right, what do we need to be? And they, 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 they'd take me for a bit of a fraction or a bit of a run around. And then he kind of mentioned that they were also in the Marines and it confused me. I was like, no, no, you boys are firemen. That's your job. And he said, no, we like most of us like part-time Marines. I was okay. like, I was like, this is interesting. So I asked him more about it. And he said, yeah, there's a reservist unit, RMR Mersey. And he said, a lot of us as firemen, we're, we're basically, um, you know, basically we can have two jobs. So I thought, right, I'll go to the Marines. I'll get fit. And then that'll stand me in good stead to join the, the fire service. Mm-hmm. So went along and day one, week one, you know, there was 59 blokes on parade. And from that, the, the troop stripey or whatever he said, listen, boys, in 18 months' time, I would expect less than 10 of you to still be standing here. And straight away, I just reeled myself out. I was just like, there's no way, uh, there's no way I'm going to be here in 18 months' time. And it, it was not through lack of determination. It was, uh, I, I just, I didn't feel I was the fittest, the strongest. You know, you look around at other guys and you're just like, wow, they're, they're machines. And little did I know, 18 months later, I, you know, proud to say I, I was one of nine blokes uh, getting get me lid and um, couldn't be any prouder. That's a hell of a dropout right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think because, because it was the reserves, I think everyone feels that they can be a Marine. You know, everyone you speak to, it's like, yeah, yeah, they, 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 I, I was going to join the Marines or I've done training. And I think, I think a lot of them go along thinking, right, I can do this. And sure enough, week by week, guys are just not turning up or just dropping out or, you know, we're, we're doing a training weekend and there's a big wagon behind us and you don't want to be in that wagon, uh, you know, and, and guys are falling away between the wayside. And every week, you know, Every task that you know I was asked of me, I, I just thought there's no way I'm getting in that wagon. If I if I start dropping behind and jumping in that, it, it's just not a good. It's not Game a good over. thing. Yeah, mate. So, yeah. I mean, I'm really interested, and I'm a little bit embarrassed actually that I don't know this. But talk me through the the process with the reserves. So I understand that you you'll likely have a a day job, right? Monday to Friday is a civilian. But yeah. then you, what, give up every weekend, every other weekend, one weekend a month, and you just get hammered, do you? Yeah, every other weekend. So it's, it's quite intense. You know, you, you, you turn off your, your, your selection weekend, and your selection weekend is just running around in gym kit, press-ups, chin-ups, uh, you know, timed, timed runs, and then at the end of that, they're looking for that commitment. They say, right, boys, you know, you're going to do 18 months every other weekend, uh, every Tuesday night you need to turn up. The guys that get through and get the lids do extra commitments. So when they say, come do a Tuesday night parade, 
we will expect you to turn up on a Thursday night and do extra fizz because you want to you want to come and do it. Uh, the weekends that you have off, we will expect you to turn up and do a bit more. So I was in college at the time and I just thought, I can do this. You know, I've got loads of time on my hands. But some guys were full-time gardeners, uh, bricklayers. And I was just thinking, you, you know, you boys are out there all week, bricklaying, gardening, and then you want to turn up on a Friday night. Mm-hmm. You want to pack your kit and you want to go and do something miserable all weekend. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I felt I was in a good position to 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 do the do the Marines thing quite quite full on. But it, it was such such a mix of people. We had um, uh, we had a. a um, a producer, uh, a music producer. We had a gardener. We had a stuntman. We had lawyers. We had. It was just mad. You know what I mean? You you just in the field. You're like, what do you do? And it's like I'm a music producer, and you're like, shut up. No, you're not. And it's like never, <laughs> never do. I produce, I produce Rod, Roger Sanchez, and you're like, no way. I was like, okay. yeah. So it, it was just a blend of people, and then it it, it it was just looking back now. It was great times, wasn't it? But um, yeah, it is what it is. Do you know what? My my mindset has changed so much over the years because I know you won't mind me saying this, but there's always that like that rivalry and banter in there when a reservist turns up and the full timers are there. Oh, here comes the rubber dagger, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I always used to think as well about when I went through training, you know, when people get back trooped. Yeah. Oh, here comes the back trooper, you know, Hunter is not good enough and all this. And and as I've got older and, you know, now I've left and then I look, from the outside in, I sit there and I look at it so differently. You know, I look at guys that go through regular training when they get in Hunter and I just think it's long enough as it is when you do it in one hit. So that it takes something extra, right. To get injured and to keep your mindset focused and to watch your original troop pass out and to not lose that drive to want to go on and earn that lid. You know, it made me look at, that whole aspect of training completely different. And it's the same with the reserves. You know, I, I, I honestly thought, I mean, do you get paid as a reserve? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we get paid a normal rate and we, we get a bounty each year if, uh, if we complete certain things to, to keep us uh, commando ready. So if you, you know, you do shooting, you do your um, BFT, your, your fitness tests, but I always remember, uh, I you, you'd you join you join the regulars, so there'd be a, a list or a board, and it, there was a great freedom in in the reserves to be like, right, I want to do that, I want to do that, I'd love to do this, and you you put your name down, and I, I got sent up to a fleet protection group, um, you know, uh, the way they do the submarines, mm-hmm. and it, you do you turn up, and from the off, you know. Everyone is like bloody fucking reserves, you know, type thing. <laughs> and you, you've got to, you've got to prove yourself, and you don't want to be that lemon that lets the mm-hmm. side down. So, uh, but by the end of your training package, so we got sent out. We were doing exercise tartan eagle. So you go out to America, work with the the Yanks over there, and I, I was integrated into fleet protection to to do what we were doing. And it, it was great, you know, from the off, it was like, right, prove yourself. And then by the end of this exercise, we, you know, we will accept you <laughs> type thing. So yeah. then we would get home and then the lads would be like, where are you going? 
was like, oh, I'm going off back home and I'm going to go back to work and I might go on holiday. And these guys were going on stag for like six weeks, uh, looking after the, the nuclear um, nuclear terrans for the, the mm-hmm. submarines. And they, uh, that was their scene off time. And, uh, and they were like, what, what are you doing in a couple of weeks? I said, well, hopefully, uh, you know, I might go and do a, a boat driving course or something like that. And they're like, no way. So like they, they, by the end, they were quite envious. They were like, wow. Uh, it's not a bad pick if um, if you do end up in the reserves. Now I remember when I was on um, Telic One in Iraq, and we had a, a guy working with us who was a fireman who was a reservist. I think his name was Jed, and he was a Marine. Right, that was his rank. So he was at the bottom of the ladder with me and most of the lads. And because he was a fireman, he was. I know they have to match your civilian pay. He was getting paid slightly more than the sergeant major was getting paid, but he had like zero response. And I always remember thinking, you jammy bastard. You're, you're sitting here getting a suntan with me and the lads and you're getting paid like 45, 46 grand a year for doing it. And yeah. I always remember coming back from that tour and I was so keen and I put in a bunch of chits to go and do, I think it was one to do on a power course, uh, one to change down to pool to work with the, the MT down in pool. And this was back before it was all on JPA and it wasn't on computers, it was paper. And, and I'm pretty sure that most of the chits I put in just got ripped up by the sergeant major and thrown in the bin. But the reservist blokes were getting everything. Like they were going on power courses, motorbike courses, anything they wanted to go on. They were like, yeah, we'll give you that. We'll give you And I'm like, what's going on here? Why? Hang on, I'm here full time trying to build my career, get some mm. ad quals and, and develop myself as a soldier because I do this all the time. And here come these guys swanning in on the weekend and they're getting everything thrown at them. And I got really annoyed of it. I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm just going to leave full time and just be a reservist. Yeah, there is a bit of give and take. So they will ask you to do things that you you don't want to do. And then they'll always remind you, it's like, listen, mate, do you want to do this course that you put in for? And you're like, yeah, no, right, right, come on. You've got to, we we need you for this. So, uh, but I, I loved it. You know, where I think... I think uh, my job at the time, I was I was just working for the council as like a sports officer uh, with Northern Kids. Uh, so I was going in, working in these pupil referral units. And then sometimes I was thinking, I shouldn't be here. I, I should just go and join. And so and so it led up to me signing a, a, full, a full-term contract. So they call it a full-time reserve service. And I signed up for four years. So by this time... I was I was an LC. Uh, I was a boat driver uh, for two raiding troop, and um, I, I just felt I had the best job ever. You know, uh, went down to pool, mm-hmm. uh, learning how to use the landing crafts and uh, the ribs and the mibs, and I, I just thought it was the coolest job ever. And you you go down there and you see the SBS boys, and I, I, I had no aspirations for what they did. I was like, wow, they're mega. Yeah. Uh, maybe one day, but I, yeah, I was just happy doing what I was doing. So signed my contract, and lo and behold, a week later, I had my accident. Um, a week? Yeah, yeah, we, a week later. So uh, I, mate, I, I said, I, in, I, yeah. Sorry, mate, I've just, in the intro to this podcast, I said that although we know each other and we're friends, I've never heard the story of, of your accident. So I'm, I don't know if excited is the right word, but I'm, uh, please, mate, continue. Tell, it, tell us what happened and. Okay, so yeah, clearly uh, nowadays I'm in a wheelchair with a spinal injury, but 
leading up to that, I, I signed my full-term contract. And then also as well, that weekend when, when I signed it, um, I was determined to do, to do something. Uh, and I, I did the Barcelona Marathon. And so I, I've never done a marathon before. It's quite boring. Um, I've done harder things than that, but I just thought, right, I'm doing a marathon. So I went and did the Barcelona Marathon. Then a week later, I went to see our kid, uh, my brother, and he's a pilot out in Anglesey. So I went to see him, and it, we were due to kite surf, do some kite surfing, and the wind that day just wasn't wasn't windy enough. So Pete wanted to buy a motorbike. So we went along to this bike shop, and we're looking at the biggest, fastest, most ridiculous bike you've seen. This bike was an absolute beast. And so Pete went on a first, and he is. He's really testing it out, really giving it some. We got halfway around and it was my turn and I had a bike license, but I wasn't a big, mad, fast bike. I was quite cautious, quite defensive. So I jumped on and then we turned this corner and the cars are parked about two miles long and we're just waiting in this cube and we're waiting. And Pete gives me a little nudge with his, if, with his knees as if to say, go on, you'll be all right. So we started making our way to the front of this queue and we got to the front. And as we got to the front, the, the guy in the front, he was impatient and he turned and we went straight into him. And I had no time to react. I just went straight in. The bike came up and the I, I flew straight into, straight into his window and I ended up across his lap and in the passenger's lap. Our piece went right over the bonnet uh, and he just broke his collarbone. He, he was lying over there. But that great big menace, that bike came up and it, it broke me back in two there and then. I couldn't feel anything. I remember, I remember observing everything, but it was like, it was like I wasn't present. You know, it, it felt like I was looking down on mm-hmm. myself, just thinking, this isn't real. And I'm lying there. I reached down. I just can't feel my legs and I, I can't feel my chest. I can feel my hands. Then seconds later, it felt like seconds and it, these firemen were all around me. And like I said, I was, trying, I was trying to get into the fire service and looked up at this guy and he must have been 20 stone, end of his career. He didn't look very healthy. And I, I just started giving him a load of shit. And it, it, the other firemen lads, they started laughing. And I remember this guy just saying to me, he's like, don't move, you're in a really bad way. And then that's when I stopped. I was trying to use humour to get myself out of this situation. But I just remember thinking, oh, shit, it's going wrong. And I remember my brother, he asked the fireman, he said, is he all right? And the fireman said, well, if he doesn't piss his pants, he'll be fine. And he looks fine. And sure enough, as soon as I said it, I pissed my pants. And he said, right. He could have spinal injuries, so we're going to put him on this board and send him away. And then that was it. I went straight into the spinal unit, and yeah, the the doctor confirmed it there. And then he was like, "There, you know, you you you've severely severed your, your cord, uh, your spinal cord. There is absolutely no way uh, that's going to grow back, or you know, it is what it is." And that was it from day one. Uh, I was 20, 22 years old, uh, 23 the week after. And then that was it. Just, you know, 
I couldn't go back to the Marines. I, I was young. I was, you know, um, I, I just, I just felt lost, absolute lost and devastation. Mate, if you don't mind, it, it may be a bit of a, an insensitive question, but obviously having gone through a traumatic incident myself and some of the other lads that I've spoken to about it, the, the common thread that comes up, what you just said is, is the, what I experienced as well. It's very surreal. It doesn't, it feels like a dream. Like you're looking at it from outside your body and that it's not happening to you. But one of the other common things that a lot of the guys say is that there was no, there's no pain. Like I didn't feel any pain, just really uncomfortable throbbing, Dave Watson, I spoke to, said the same. A load of the lads who went through rehab said the same. But but I'm talking to these are majority amputees. Your your situation is very different. You severed your spinal cord. Did yeah. did you feel anything when you were lying there? I didn't feel a thing, and it it, it worries me. The, the the main pain I had was the, my brain just thinking you should you should be able to feel something. You should be able to feel some excruciating pain. And I can't feel anything. And it just, it, it just, you know, it really concerns me. And then I got rushed straight into hospital, into the spinal unit. And the nurse there, the, she said, if, you know, I was wired up to this morphine. And she said, if you're in any type of pain whatsoever, just press this drip and you'll be all right. And I wasn't in any type of pain. I thought, what the hell? You know, I'm never going to get this opportunity again. So I pressed it and the morphine, it just it just knocked me out. And, it, you know, it knocked all the thoughts and the feelings that I was going through. And then it came back around. And this is this is the point when the doctor's trying to deliver the bad news. And I, I can see him coming across. I just thought, I can't handle this. So pressed it again. The morphine went in, and I just thought, "Great, I I can just keep pressing this thing as much as I can, and just delay the process of what's going on." Then my mum and dad, they were there at the end of the bed, and then I just kept on pressing and pressing, and it, this morphine ran out, and then it just it really did hit me that I was like I was twenty two, was no longer in the Marines, and just for um, I'm spending the rest of my life in a wheelchair. And then um, that was it. Like, you know, late, I was on bed rest for six or seven weeks. Just they put loads of metal work in me back. So I've broken my spinal cord at T4. So if you imagine just the, the, the line of my nipples, the bit of a weird fact. I can feel one nipple, can't feel the other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So quite strange. Uh, so yeah, I've broken my back. And then what they do, they fixate your back. So I've got loads of titanium rods. And they go from T2 to T6. Um, but essentially, the, the, the nerve endings at uh, T4 are just never going to grow back. And the doctor, he showed me the x-ray. And he said, you know, the top of your spine's over there and the, the bottom's over there. And he said, that is one big clean sever. Um, so I, I, I think in terms of spinal injuries, they will fix people uh, eventually. But I think they'll fix people within four to six hours of the injury and they'll, they'll put some magic uh, enzymes in that'll make the, the spine grow together. Uh, but I think, I think I'm not, 
I'm not catching on to the fact that I'm ever going to walk again. I, I think walking around, it's not the biggest hassle in your life. You know, you, you, in a wheelchair, you can access things, you can do things that buildings are, you know, um, compliance for, for wheelchairs. So that's not my biggest issue. I think uh, the biggest issue is bladder and bowels, making sure everything works okay, and then just, just keeping healthy uh, for the family and for myself. Yeah, I think, um, and you can obviously educate me here, but I think being in a wheelchair, it's very much like being an amputee, as in everyone's completely different and what you see isn't always what you get. So I always get people send me videos of like below knee amputees rock climbing and saying, why aren't you doing this, Mark? And I'm like, because the dude's got knees and he doesn't, you know what I mean? I don't have knees, but... And I was going to ask you before you said about being a T4, there, there are so many different levels, aren't there? And with each level, I'm guessing, come extra complications and yeah. extra difficulties. But a lot of people maybe just w- will look at you and you'll be sat next to someone else in a wheelchair and think that your lives are the same when actually I bet they're completely different. Is that accurate? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, when I say I'm T4 complete, if you can imagine, I've got no core or function uh, around me, my chest, my belly. So one of my sports is tennis, mm-hmm. wheelchair tennis. And everyone's like, are you going to the Paralympics? It's like, no. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm not. And I'm like, why not? Why, why aren't you one of those Paralympians? Like, but You have to. Don't you know that's a prerequisite <laughs> yeah. of being disabled? Yeah, yeah. And then I've got to follow up with a bit of education. It was like, because I've got a shit disability, and they were like, "What do you mean?" And it's like, "Well, you've got a, you've got the quad category, and you've got the open category. So in the open category, I can play any guys who've got like a chocolate toe or a turned in, you know, club mm-hmm. foot or whatever." And it was like, "These guys can all stand up at the bar at the end of the day and have a drink, and these guys are reaching shots that are just low and." Uh, when I go over for a really low ball, I'm, I'm sticking down there. There's no way I can get me, you know, get myself back up there. So, you know, I just, unfortunately, I fell in love, I fell in love with a sport that I'm never, I'm never going to, you know, really get there. And um, or they were lucky for me, as you know, uh, the Invictus Games. So uh, tennis came in. And I thought brilliant. I've been losing a tennis for well over ten years, and I thought. I can do this. I can, mm-hmm. I can go the Invictus Games and I'm a tennis player and I know what's going on and I reckon I can do it. And sure enough, um, Orlando 2016 went out mm-hmm. there. Me and Andy, Andy Mack. Andy Mack's been playing for years. So we're, we're like two, two very old tennis players who've never made the Paralympics because we've got really poor disabilities. Well, we're not bitter about that. But that was our time to go out there and shine and we did and we did it. Mate, I, mate I've, I've said this before to people. I, I, I 100% get what you're talking about when you say like, quote unquote, a shit disability. Because the way they classify these sports or stuff, you're exactly right. Like your disability, and I, I don't like to say this, but you know what I'm trying to say when I say that it limits you so much more than another player that you play against, like you said, who can just get up at the end of the day and walk to the bar and have a pint. But people think because you're in the same classification that your injuries are exactly the same and they're not. And I I discovered this a lot in the Invictus Games when I was doing rowing and swimming and I'm competing against guys with two arms. And I'm like, why are you in this category? 
everyone else is either a quadruple amputee or a triple amputee, you've got two arms. Of course you're going to win. Or even if you've got you know, three limbs missing, if you're a double below the knee and a below the elbow on a rowing machine and you've got two knees to power with, two elbows to power with, your league's ahead of me. You, you could probably fall asleep halfway through a race and still beat me because you've got all those power points to, to pull a rowing machine with. And it's the same with you. This is what I was trying to say just now. People would just look at you next to another guy and assume that your lives are very similar when actually they're very different, you know? Yeah. And, and that was made really apparent to me when I started competing in the games, which is why I would never pursue the Paralympics. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because, you know, obviously they need guys, enough disabled guys to fill, to fill that category. Because if not, you you're going to be racing against yourself or just one other guy, you know, so it, mm -hmm. they've got to, they've got to have enough members in the race to go for it. But um, say like swimming, um, disabled swimming, I think there's five or six different categories. Uh, so you, you're obviously a bit more fair, but tennis, you've just got two categories, an open category and a quad category. And uh, I, I do feel that there is an in-between middle bit. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I think guys have pushed for it for years and uh, I, I don't know uh, but you know it's it's one of those sports that if you like and you know you can play it socially and still enjoy it it's just uh, a bit frustrating that when you do go to tournaments sometimes you're just like this guy's going to smash me yeah <laughs> but yeah I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit hole with this because we, we sound like a, a pair of really bitter bastards but I always <laughs> You know, like when I watched the Paralympics, I can't remember who I was watching, but there was a cycling race going on. And someone, one of the one of the racers just had one hand. They were born with one hand and they were racing against people with legs missing. And I was watching it and I'm trying to, I'm sat there thinking, I'm not quite sure how having a hand missing can put you in the same classification racing against people with legs missing because you don't power a, a push bike with your hand. You just clip it into the, the handlebar and then you just power with two healthy legs but you're racing against someone who's got a prosthetic or someone who's just trying to power the whole bite of one leg i don't understand how that works that surely that that shouldn't be allowed yeah well you know what with, with our injuries it makes us an expert in every single disabled mm. so yeah we, we're just we can just say what we want can't we we're just like, <laughs> that, we're like yeah that's not right you know it should be like it should be like this and you know it, it, it's funny it, it makes us ex experts and everything that obviously we're not but yeah anyway moving swiftly yeah. on how did you do at the invictus games i know the answer i did really well mark and, oh, i know um, you I'm, did yeah I'm, I'm really chuffed to say so yeah i got two gold medals uh, so yeah, I was, I was selected. I, I was selected for 2016 Orlando, and wheelchair tennis was in it. But before that, I, I attended 20, 2014 uh, down in London, and I, I missed the boat. I, I, I didn't hear about the Invictus Gate. I, I just got told, right, go down and just watch it and see what's going on. And I went down to London, and I was watching all these guys just race around the tr track and. We went to the Foo Fighters concert and it was just rocking. And I just thought, this is amazing. I thought, mm -hmm. how can I, how can I be in this? And sure enough, uh, you know, the trials came out for 2016. So I, I put my name down for every sport, like archery, cycling, swimming, and it went to all these camps and it, you know, was figuring out. It was like, yeah, no good at that one, no good at that one. But 
I knew to get selected for the games, it was all about, you know, showing you were keen, determined, open to new sports. And um, sh- sure enough, I got selected. And looking back now, it was just the best times ever. You know, mm-hmm. as, as soon as you get selected, you are a prof- proper athlete and you, you, you train hard and you, you're focused. And we went out to the games and um, there was no handicap system for, for wheelchair tennis. So we got drawn against the Yanks. Uh, and this, this was a match to get into the games. And before flying out with it, my missus, she said to me, you best still be in the games by the time I get there. I was like, oh no. I said, <laughs> I said me and Andy are going to play this match and we're going to lose. And she's going to come out. She's like, so you're not even playing tennis? Like, what, what's going on? And we played this match and we got into a tiebreaker. And I was like, so, you know, six all. I was like, right, all we need to do is get to seven. And we were looking good, but the Americans are there and they've got a massive crowd. And in our crowd was just like two or three people, one, one being the coach, one being a health heroes representative. And I was like, oh no, this, this isn't looking good. And it, sure enough, we, we, we crept forward and we just, we just pipped them to the post, me and Andy. And I was like, from then on, it, it was plain sailing, plain sailing to the final. We got to the final and we won it. And Prince Harry's there. And I just thought, this is mega. You know, this is this is just brilliant. Uh, me, me, me wife's there with my unborn child. You know, she's six months pregnant, just on the limit. And it was just the best times ever. But it got me thinking, you know, with my career, like my short-lived career in the, Mar- in the Marines, I never got the opportunity to go out and do what I needed to do. I, I was trained up to do a job that fundamentally... I didn't do. So it, it, over the years, I, I felt bad. You know, I, I felt like I, I was sharing a lot of time with guys who had been out there and done it. I, I didn't feel like a proper veteran, you know, and I, I think the games for me was my chance to represent the core and the country and go out there and try and yep. do my best. And I did. Yeah, that, this is this is one of the things that I always say when they... They say people say, you know, what was the the biggest thing that you got from the Invictus Games? And I said it was having the opportunity to represent my country again because I thought it was something that I'd never get to do. Because yeah. like you say, when you serve, that's what you want to do. And when that's taken away from you, you don't think you'll ever get the chance to do it again. And like we just talked about, you know, Paralympic hopes are not realistic for for guys with our kind of injuries, you know, at that at the further end of that disability spectrum so the Invictus is that perfect kind of middleman isn't it where you can go out there you know and train hard as you said a proper athlete you know take it seriously go out there put on that GB tracksuit represent your country represent the core just go out and whip some ass you know what I mean and and have a good time doing it and it's like a melting pot of so many different guys and so many different stories so I you know, I felt my career was quite short at four years, but I, I packed quite a bit into it. And I met one guy who did 28 days down in Sandhurst and then, and then had his accident. I was like, well, Blimenech, I said, that's bad for you. You know, I said, at least I got to do a bit. 
Uh, but, you know, there, there's some guys, I know, you've got other guys who have had careers of 20, 25 years and then just got um, a, a diagnosis of something mm-hmm. and, you know, finished their career off prematurely, you know, when they weren't ready. And, you know, I, I just feel, um, you know, the, the games have taken a bit of a hit again this year with yeah. the Hague. And these guys have been training for it and they're, they're being, you know, um, let go again. You know, they've got another year to go for it. But I think when they do finally come around to do it, I think if if they achieve whatever they achieve, it's, it's going to be sweeter knowing that they've been training for it for quite some time. Are you, are you going to go for that one or are you done with Invictus now? Yeah, so I'm done. Totally done. So I, I, I applied for Australia, but I... I shouldn't have been there. I, I didn't want to tell myself that, you know, you, you, you're, you're done, mate. You jump off the bus. Uh, I thought, right, I'll let someone else tell me that I shouldn't be there. So I, I went down for trials and stuff like that. And I spoke to the psychologist. Uh, I said, I shouldn't be here. And she said, just just give that choice to someone else. Let, let them decide that you shouldn't be here. And um, so that was my break uh, from Invictus for, for quite some time. But... I've just been given a new role, uh, which I'm quite excited to say. It, it hasn't been launched yet, but I think it will do soon. And it's uh, an Invictus moderator. Uh, so what they're doing, they're getting the, the Illumini, a couple of guys who have been there, done it, to, to when I say moderate, I haven't got a clue how to moderate yet, but apparently I'm an Invictus moderator. So okay. uh, what, what it's to do with the, the, the We Are Invictus app, uh, have you heard of it? I have, yeah. Okay, so you sign up to the app, and it's basically an online community where guys, past and present, uh, not only people who have been to the games, but if anyone who is wounded, injured, and sick can connect on this app, and you can um, you can sign up to different sports, you can challenge yourself against others, and so uh, basically as a moderator, and they're going to translate it as well. So we can start speaking to guys in, you know, Germany, whatever, uh, uh-huh. and the app will start translating it for us. So uh, they're making it into a big, wide community, you know, trying to keep that Invictus spirit going. And yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited to say I'm part of it. And I'm hoping may, maybe to go out the games uh, in, on the other side as part of the Invictus Foundation, but uh, I, I really don't know. Uh, but just quite excited to get get it going mate it's, it's really good that they're doing things like that because a massive part of this you know people from the outside looking in they see the events on telly you know once in a while and people winning there and that's part of it but it's it's more than that it's that community like you said you know when all the the noise has died down and you know there's no cameras around it's having that community of people in a similar situation going through similar things staying connected you know and, and helping each other supporting each other from i mean from all over the world it's brilliant and that's another great thing about invictus is i've met people from all over the world and made friends with those people from you know different branches of the military from everywhere all through sport and through invictus you know yeah. it's been it's been phenomenal i can't wait for when it does kick off again to be there as a spectator because I'm going to yeah. be that that annoying guy in the crowd, drunk, right? Just screaming and cheering. And it's going to be so nice to not have that pressure of yeah. training and competing and 
you know, getting your mindset right and, you know, all that stuff that goes along with, with actually being an athlete, but just to be in that environment is such a buzz. Yeah, you know, I, I can't, I can't wait. Because my, my son, well, he's four years old and he's never been exposed to, to anything like that. Obviously, me and my wife, it's been part of our journey to, together. You know, she knows I've been training for him, what it's meant for me. But it'll be nice to expose him to, to, to what's out there. And when we go, you know, uh, I'm hoping he's going to ask those questions like, Daddy, you know, why, why has that man got half yep. an eyebrow? Uh, <laughs> as, as, as his main limb uh, and it, you know I think kids shouldn't feel bad to say that you know it, they are inquisitive uh, and they need to know that you know these guys are superhumans you know and um, I, I don't mind when kids say to me you know why are you in a wheelchair mm-hmm. it's like you know I, I try and say something funny but it, it never it never comes out right kids don't get sarcasm do they no so, uh, uh, i just say that you know be good to your mum and dad you know type thing but uh, i say oh yeah i got knocked over on a motorbike um, mm-hmm. you know be careful but um yeah it's a cool thing i, I love it uh, i love the games that's a good little segue, actually, because one of the things I wanted to to talk to you about is being a dad, you know, and, and the challenges that being in a wheelchair bring to that. So, how, I mean, how have you found that? You're you're a father of one, is that right? Yeah, yeah, one little nipper. Uh, yeah. that, he, he, he's awesome. He's um, we went to the beach yesterday, and uh, he's like, I'm going to run all the way home. It's like, mate, I'm sure it's just under two miles back home. Like, no, we can do it. <laughs> And he, he's just running along. It's like, I've got this whizzy wheel, you know, it's like, a, um, it goes on the front of my wheelchair and I, I get to zip to where I'm going. I was like, mate, you, you can jump on this. I'll whiz you home. No, no, I can do it. I can do it. And he did. Uh, I, I was just amazed. He ran two miles? I think so, yeah. Yeah. And what? it was like, half of it was a bit of a beach. I was like, mate, it's, it's like rocky. I said, like, <laughs> you, it's like you're running on the, the most hardest terrain ever. But, uh, I told me what I got home. I was like, he ran all the way home. I was like, yeah. So he's a mega little boy, but um, he's, Mate, he's... Can I just, can, can I just yeah. jump in a minute? Because you just said something that I think is really important. You said you got home and you told your wife, which tells yeah. me that you went out on your own in a wheelchair with your son. Now, yeah. I think there are a lot of people listening that would just assume that that's not a possibility for a numer- numerous reasons. Tell, tell me about that, mate, because that's fascinating to me. And, and we got stuck in a sand dune. So that's the extra part <laughs> of the story. So I, I, I've i got this whizzy wheel and it, it is cool. It goes on the front of my chair and uh, I can do 20, 25 miles an hour. And I'm, I'm rapid wow. when I'm using it. So the beach is about just under two miles away. So from ours, I'll get him on. And he's like, yeah, this is, you know, we're, we're doing the whizzy wheel. Hey. And then we'll get down there and there's a boardwalk. So you go through the boardwalk, which is fine. And, and that's where wheelchair guys are meant to stay on, you know, stay on the boardwalk, do not go on the beach. And then there's a little bit of soft sand. And I thought, right, we're down here, right? We're, we're going for it. You know, there's loads of people about, if you ever get to, you know, people are always trying to help mm-hmm. girls. It's like, right, we're going for it. So I knew that I knew the first bit will be fine. So we whizzed down, soft sand. Yeah, 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 get through. And then we're on the beach. 
and it is plain sailing. You know, it sounds nice and soft, and we are ragging along. You know, people, it's weird. It's really weird time. Everyone is walking, isn't it? Everyone, they're like zombies everywhere because yeah. everyone is just walking with nothing, mm-hmm. nothing to do or nothing on the mind. So we, we whiz down the beach, just me and him, turn round, whiz all the way back. And I know, I know we're going to get stuck or this, this is our problem there. So it's like, right, mate, yeah, so we're going for it. I said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speed it as much as I can. We're, we're going to get through that really soft sand. Uh, so we absolutely went for it and I turned to get back on the boardwalk and it was like it was like a car crash we started going over as if uh. as if we're going to land in the sand I was like right you jump off too much weight so we jumped off and he, he kind of caught me and it, we were virtually there and then this guy came behind alright mate do you need a hand yes please and I gave us a bit of a push and I thought brilliant and it, you know so I, I am doing all the normal things that the, the dads try and do. Actually, you know, sometimes I'm doing super duper things that normal dads aren't doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he appreciates it. I, I enjoy it. But I just thought, yeah, just if you if you get certain bits of equipment that can help you do things like this, then it's only a good thing. So, yeah, we got, we got stuck. He ran home. Mum was happy. We both survived. Yeah. Jobs are golden. Uh, mate, I think by living that way, you know, the way you do, I think we kind of unconsciously teach kids lessons. So, you know, there could be a lot of people that might think you, d- you don't do those things or your wife does most of the things and you sit back and oh, I can't do this because I'm in a wheelchair. I can't do that because I'm in a wheelchair. But you, you're going out and you're doing it and you're taking your boy with you. You know, and you're getting into these situations and you're, you know, nice pastors by helping out and you're figuring it out and they don't realize it at the time because they're so young, but you're imprinting lessons in their mind. You know, don't let X, Y, Z hold you back. You know, don't stop living your life because of this, that, and the other, you know, go out there and just, just do it because, you know, I don't think there's anything worse than taking the adversity that you've, you've had in your life and using that as an excuse not to live your life. Yeah, I mean, obviously, with my disability, we, we all have our own demons and, and, and stuff to uh, get over. And I, I, I really try and not let them see that, that side of me, you know. So I do have issues where I've got pressure uh, pressure issues that where they're obviously sitting in a wheelchair all the time. And I've got to be careful where uh, I've got – sometimes I've got to take the pressure off my bum and stuff like that, and I don't – I don't bear, I don't try and burden him with the, the, these problems. So I, the time that I have got with him was like, right, we're going to do something really fun and exciting. Um, so yeah, yeah, I just it's just that mindset, isn't it? Just this is the way we're going to be. Um, you know, just because Dad's in a wheelchair doesn't mean that you're not going to have a, a full, fun, fulfilling mm-hmm. life. Uh, and then the, the times that. Um, I'm struggling or I've, I've got things to do with my disability, then obviously I, I, I try and shelter, shelter it away from him. But I think mm-hmm. he, will, he will appreciate it in the future. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Mm-hmm. Now, I've got a list in front of me that I'm looking at on my phone of some other pretty ninja things that you've gotten involved with and achieved uh, since your accident. Now, I'm just going to rattle a few off and, you know, We'll, we'll go into them, but a flying scholarship in South Africa, 
skiing, becoming a balloon pilot, septicemia, another challenge. There's all the all these, mate. Let's just let's dig into yeah. this for a, a while. Okay, uh, so yeah, I've I've got I've got a private pilot's license, so I can rock up, jump in my little plane, get me cheering, and uh, off we go. You know, sail those silky skies. Uh, obviously, not during COVID. Everything's just been cancelled, hasn't it? But uh, it's just such a cool thing to do, and uh, I'm, I'm so glad it like. If I wasn't in a wheelchair, I would never have had the opportunity to mm-hmm. apply for this uh, scholarship. And they sent me out to South Africa and I did 45 hours, came home. And yeah, I had this license to say, right, you're a pilot, off you go. And it's, uh, it's amazing. I fly with a charity called Airability and they're a disabled charity within the UK that help, help people fly. When I got my scholarship, it was called Flying Scholarships for the Disabled, and that was set up by Sir Douglas Barder, and he was the original superhuman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, he was that good being disabled. you like this, Mark. Whilst in a prisoner of war camp, they confiscated his prosthetic legs because he kept on trying to escape. Down <laughs> to that. I'd wear that like a badge of on it. Can you imagine now the guys coming in? Uh, Douglas, uh, where's your legs? Yeah, yeah, I got confiscated. I kept trying to jump that wall. Didn't I? <laughs> Legend. <laughs> Legend. So uh, he came back he, and he he was the original guy who was, he was playing golf, he was flying, he, and he, he had these legs that I think uh, they, were, they were covered up most of the time. Now, a, a lot of you guys, you know, you can see your prosthetics all the time but mm-hmm. I think back then it still was uh, a bit of a no-no and he, he covered them up but still did amazing things you know um, do you know what's even more impressive about that go on. is that back then the technology was awful compared to what we've got now I always say some people agree some people disagree but this is the best time ever in history to be disabled because of technology because of the prosthetics, because of the wheelchairs, because of smartphones, how you can still like run businesses if you're disabled and, and do all this, like what we're doing here now, hundreds of miles apart, we can still talk. Back in his day, you know, they, they were made out of tin and beaten with hammers and they were held on with straps and there was no microprocessors in the knees or Bluetooth capability or iPhones to hook up and change your modes. It was just like, here's your stuff, go figure, go figure life out. And you were almost, like you said, it, it was, they were hidden away because it was almost like, oh, it comes the freak. Whereas now it's, oh, wow, look at this cool guy's wheelchair and this cool guy's legs. So, you know, it makes everything that he did and he achieved and that he was even more impressive in, in my mind. Yeah, yeah. And, and certainly nowadays, I think the exposure that people have got with disabilities, with the Paralympics, with Facebook, YouTube, whatever, you know, you, you, can't, you can't go anywhere without physically seeing disabilities in a positive way you know mm-hmm. you, you're seeing guys um it was one guy that did k2 the other day and on a on a stumpies you know get big up to him uh, mm-hmm. you know so it's just you know um and when i fly my little plane i'll jump out and i might take someone out for the day with me and they'll get me wheelchair out i i can do it myself but you know, if someone's with me, they'll get out mm-hmm. and I'll go in to the clubhouse or whatever and they'll think, oh, bless. 
that, that instructor's took that wheelchair man out for the day and he won't appreciate that. I was like, no, mate, I've I've flown here. This is just me, mate. <laughs> this is just me, mate. This is the guy buying the, the teas and coffees for the day. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's just, uh, it is, uh, in, in this day and age, you can't afford not to, not to prejudge and, and people still do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, flying, love it, love it. Talk to us about skiing as well. Yeah, ski. Have you ever done it? I, I tried it once a long time ago. Um, I I didn't like it. I think where my issue was was because I've only got one arm. I'm, I'm sat yeah. in this bucket on a mono ski, and I'm being pushed everywhere, and I felt like a baby in in a pram being pushed around and put on the lifts. The guys with two arms could use their ski poles to navigate themselves and hump themselves onto a lift. So I didn't like that. And also, like the way I do things, not in a dangerous way, but I, I prefer to do things when I've got the hang of it quicker because my mind works quicker. So when I'm going down a mountain and I'm carving left to right, I like to go fast and just be boom, 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 rather than slow. Mm. And because of that, they, they, they had me on, the instructors had me on like these leashes and they wouldn't let me off for the whole week because they said I was too dangerous. And I'm, I was yeah. trying to explain to them, I'm not dangerous. I just operate better when I'm quicker. But they, they refused to let me off the whole week and it just kind of soured my whole experience. And, and it's freezing as well, being sat in that bucket without being able to move or exercise. I just froze all day long. So I, I didn't like it, but you obviously had a different experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can I, I can totally understand where you're coming from. It, it for me, it is freedom and it is independence. And the there is a faff uh, ski, and it is a whole faff to to get your kit, to get to the slope, to jump jump in your rig. But once once I'm in my rig, uh, so I, I use a sit ski, and, and I've got one ski down the middle, two little skis on my hands, and unlike unlike you, I, like I could. Be really independent so once i'm in that ski i could load myself onto the chair i could jump mm-hmm. off at the end i could ski down you know i can obviously i will fall over and sometimes i can prop myself back up and then sometimes i just can't but again someone will ski next year do you want a hand yeah and it'll pull you up mm-hmm. and um it's just um i loved it and uh, I, again there was a lot of guys uh are you going to the Paralympics, mate? I was like, no, mate, I'm, <laughs> like, no, mate. Was, no, mate I'm, I'm not going to the Paralympics. Why aren't you going to the Paralympics? It's like, well, I've got a wife and I'd have to spend six months away and then the whole disability mm-hmm. thing, I've got quite a high level. Um, I was like, no, mate, I just I just like skiing. Just, just yeah. leave me alone. Just, um, yeah. So it, and I, I was really, really fortunate. So I was in the um, Armed Forces ski team and it was just it felt weird because i i was obviously a civilian road traffic accident and then i was mixing with a lot of guys who were afghanistan up herrick getting blown up and i just felt totally different from them i was like i couldn't i couldn't relate to obviously what they've been through but in in terms of my disability and the team you know I think they did, they did finally appreciate. They were like, it's quite hard for you to ski, isn't it? I was like, yeah. And, you know, if they've just got one leg missing, you know, it's, it's, it's not that hard and uh, they can do it really well. So it, it took a while for me to um, be comfortable and be happy. 
But eventually, I, I think I managed to earn that respect that I kept turning up and I kept doing it. And I was, I was trying to do as much independent things as I could. And at times, guys were like grabbing me skis, like, no, mate, you're, just, you're struggling a bit there, you know, but mm-hmm. I'd never, you know, I'd never try and enforce that help. But um, I loved it. And hopefully that, hopefully I'm still part of that team one day. But I think the guys who are going to the Paralympics, they're, they're really focusing on it um, and going for it. But don't you think it's just nice? I, I want to talk about, Something else that you uh, you pilot as well in a minute, but don't you think it's just nice with like the flying, the skiing, the tennis, just to be able to have the opportunity to do it and to enjoy. It. You don't have to compete. Everyone thinks when you're disabled, you have to be a competitive athlete, but just to go out and enjoy it, mate, and like you say, get that sense of freedom and I, I, live. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, variety is the spice of life, isn't it? So mm. when you do get towards winter, you, you do want to go away skiing. And then mm-hmm. as soon as summer comes, if you're a winter athlete, you need to go into that snow zone and not enjoy the sun. Uh, you know, so I, I think that's the commitment that these athletes make. You know, I am so focused on my sport that I am going to go into a really cold freezer and ski whilst the sun's out on the, the beach and stuff like that. So mm. I, I, yeah, I think I just chose that from the beginning. I just thought, right, I, I'm not, I'm not committed enough to, to drop everything else that I do. So I, I like me tennis. I like me flying. And um, I, with my disability, I try, I try and be the best I can be uh, anything that I'm doing. And uh, there'll always be a limit, but uh, obviously through time and, you know, experience and stuff like that. But in everything I do, I, I try, you know, I, I am quite competitive. So I try as much as I can to be the best I can be in what, whatever sport or venture I'm doing. Absolutely. It's the bootneck spirit, mate. Mm. Now, what else, apart from planes, do you pilot? Do you mean hot air balloons? I do mean hot air balloons. I'm, I've never been in a hot air It's on my bucket list. In fact, I bought my wife last year for her birthday. Uh, I think it was a Virgin Experience Day for me and her to go in a balloon, but COVID hit. But yeah. I'd love to do that. So I, I'm, I'm so ignorant, right? From what yeah. I, in my head, I've just got, okay, you got that big wicker basket, a big balloon, then someone pulls a lever and a flame goes up and that's it, right? I'm obviously okay. wrong. Okay, no, you got half of it right. So okay. uh, you, you got the flame bit right. Put the flame in, balloon goes up. The bottom bit is a couch. Okay, mm-hmm. so vision, you're on your couch. You got nothing in front of you. So I transfer from my wheelchair onto this couch. Mm-hmm. Two seater couch, two seater couch. Me and the instructor guy, and we're just sitting there. Legs are dangling over the edge. Um, we've got two big fuel tanks next to us, loads of fuel, five hours fuel. And I, I got this weird, uh, there was a scholarship, a balloon scholarship. And I went, I can do this. I, I can apply for it and get it. And they sent me out to Italy, Mondovi. So this place, Mondovi, it, it's, by, it's south of the Alps. And it's like a horseshoe where you've got the Alps and it's, it's that high. And then in this bowl or crater, Everything's just calm and still, and it's perfect for ballooning. In this country, you get your balloon out and you you get blown. Right. I was going to say, mate, don't don't you ever go on these courses in like Scarborough or Derby or somewhere? Why do you go to these exotic locations all the time? I know, I know. So they they sent me out to Italy, and 
I got there and I thought, I met this guy, Giovanni, you know, he had, he's your ballooning guy, I speak to Giovanni. And um, I was like, I couldn't work out whether he, he was in the mafia or not, because he turns up and he's a small guy. And he's got all these big guys next to him and he's got this black Range Rover. And they picked me up from the area. Alex, how you doing? You, you have a beautiful wife. I was like, how do you know that? He's like, Facebook. <laughs> He's like, Facebook, my friend. I, I, I checked you up. Stalking you. Yeah, I check you up and I was like, right, okay. I sort of jumped in this, into this black Range Rover and he's got all these big guys. And um, yeah, one was the, the, the ex-head of police. And I was like, right, well, why is, why is he with us? So day one, um, we get the balloons out and he shows me this couch. And it, it's, a pro, you know, it, it's a balloon couch that we sit on. And it's, it's proper. And we set the balloon up and we go up. And we're just having the best flight ever. So it's weird. Everything's dead slow. And it's like a game of chess. So it's like, right, there's a fence over there. I need to do something to miss that fence. Right. Um, 50 meters away. Right. I need to burn now. But I need to burn not too much because I don't want to go flying over. So I burn a little bit. And then you, you weigh up. And you, you just fly over this fence. And then you go back down. And then you, you, so you just, you just go mm-hmm. really low. And you're like a helicopter, right, really still. And then you, the, the, there's a house or a villa over there. Right. We'll go over there. So go over there, and he obviously knows the, the person in the house. Like, hello, how are you? And we're speaking to him. It's like one of those adverts, one of those weird uh, avioli, you know, one of those uh, butter adverts where you, you're picking up a bit of butter off someone else, then you go for your bagel or your, your right, bread. Right, right. In a hot just, air balloon. Yeah, and it's just sort of real. You're just like, wow. Um, uh, you know, um, I'm with this guy. Uh, we're out in Italy, and uh, by the end, in two weeks' time, I'm going to be a balloon pilot, and it, I've never, I've never used my license to to go and balloon because I've, I've not got the opportunity to do. It. But to go out there and to prove myself, and he, you know, he he, he let me loose. So mm-hmm. by the end of two weeks, it's like right over to you. And I took this balloon up, and the, the day itself it was dead still. So he said, all you have to do for your license is go up. And he said, just hang around there for 30 minutes and then just drop back down and I'll give you a license. I thought, so he let me loose. I thought, no, you know, this is your one chance. Like, so it went a bit higher and as you go a bit higher, it'll take you somewhere. And these guys are on the ground and they're in the van and they've got walkie-talkie and I've got walkie-talkie and I'm starting to get in a bit of a pickle. Like he said, don't go over the town. You've got town, ravines, you'll, you'll be in a really bad place. And I'm edging towards this town and I can't get down. And just like the panic starts to set in. Mm-hmm. And I've got walkie-talkie, they've got walkie-talkie. But they don't want to speak to me because it's meant to be me being really independent. And I'm just like, I'm going to get myself in a right pickle here. And so I, I, I was trying to come down and it took me, it took me about two hours to get back on the floor. So mm-hmm. I, went over, I did this half an hour. I had five hours fuel, but... You know, I, I, I went for one landing, that didn't work, psh, went back up. I went for another landing, realised I was in an industrial state. You know, I don't really want to be there, psh, back up. And I can see where I don't want to be. And in the end, I thought, right, I need to get down here. So popped over these power lines. I was like, oh, you don't want to go into that. And it, it was, you know, it was, it was the cruddiest landing ever. And I got down. These guys ran towards me, and the, the real the relief on their face on my face was just like, mm. "Thank God for that." But uh, the point was, the point was, I could have just hovered, 
30 minutes, just literally off the ground. He wasn't giving it to me. But I think he knew. He was like, no, if you want to do it, if you want to do it, go and do a proper, have a proper flight, go, go and try somewhere. And uh, I did. And we survived it. But it, it, was, it, was, it was hoofing. Best thing That's ever. Awesome. Happy days. Now, I want to move on quickly to talk about something which I'm imagining, and we'll just try and cover this quickly if we can. Yeah. I'm imagining something that isn't as uplifting as the things we've been talking about, and that's septicemia. What's, what's, what happened there? It was a bad chapter in my life. So septicemia, it's a blood poisoning. And I was out skiing. We went out to America to ski against the Yanks, the Wounded Warriors. And something didn't click one day. Like physically, I didn't feel well. And I thought it was a water infection. These are the type of things that I get. And it wasn't water infection. It was something a lot worse than that. So I got home. My wife, she called for an ambulance. Got rushed straight into hospital. And just to rewind six weeks earlier, I went swimming one night. And you know the hoist to get you in and out the pool? Yeah. It wasn't working. So I got to the side of the pool and I lifted up. I caught my bum on a tile. And the skin had healed over. But the infection or whatever was on the tile got into my body. Okay. And it was just building away. And it was building. And I, I couldn't, feel, couldn't feel any of it. So six weeks down the line, and it turns into septicemia and it just absolutely nailed me. Um, I was, you know, I, I didn't know where it was. Uh, into hospital and I had a load of surgery. So they cut down my leg and they took away a lot of muscle in my bum and my leg and my hamstrings and, um, to clear this infection. And then the only way to, to fully try and get rid of this infection was to lie there like Superman. So I'm lying there in the spinal, spinal unit like Superman and little did I know I'd still be there just under a year later trying to, trying to get rid of this infection, trying to, uh, trying to heal this injury to get back in my wheelchair, to get home to, to where I needed to be. And it was just, it was just one of the hardest parts of my life. When, when I first had my injury, I always knew I'd be all right. Like in the back of my head, well, I'm 22. Mm-hmm. I can do this. You know, you're all right. You're going to have a full and independent lifestyle. But when I had the septicemia, I was aware of all these amazing things that I could do. I could ski, tennis, fly. I'm just lying there and I just don't know whether I'm ever going to get back to that point where I can go back and do these things. And lucky for me, I did. I got back to where I need to be. But um, the whole septicemia saga was um, really hard. I'd only been married for a year and that's meant to be our honeymoon, isn't it? And Jane right. was coming in every day to see me in the hospital, bringing me food, trying to keep me company. I wasn't in the best of spirits. Um, and yeah, it, it took a real big toll. No, I can, I can relate to that, mate. It's funny, like, the, you know, since I've been injured and I've been opened up to this world of, of disability and I've created a whole new peer group of people with different challenges and issues, you, you realise actually how much how many people have stories like that similar so you think you know they've got they've gone through enough already you know what i mean they've got these challenges already and then something else hits septicemia so you know you said you were laying like superman so imagine him face down right yeah 
for the best part of a year in a hospital ward, which, yeah. I mean, a day is long enough to do that, let alone close to a year, you know, and you meet all these people that, you know, I, I myself, you know, I was training for a jujitsu fight and some dude slammed me and broke my femur on my right leg, snapped the end of my bone off. And that, wow. so I know where your head's at. You're, you're sat there and automatically you're going through all these great things that you've achieved thinking, I'm never going to be able to do that again. I'm never going to put a leg on again. I'm never going to be able to do, you know, and you start panicking and then you've got another fight on your hands to go through that knocks yeah. you back. But I mean, re resilience, mate, is, uh, it's, it's quite an overused word, I think, but. Yeah. I, I mean, I didn't realize it at the time. So just to explain the process, I had the surgery. I was lying there, the skin had healed. And at some point, the doctor will be like, right, we're going for it. Let's try and get you up in a chair. And then the skin will break down again. And he knew that. He was like, it's not good enough to, to be fully there. And I break down, back into bed, healer, healer, healer. Right, let's go for it again. Yeah, it's broke down again. Unlucky mate, back in you go. And this process just kept on going on. And I didn't realize, you know, I didn't realize I was a resilient person, you know, but... I think I needed to be, uh, to get through it, to, to try and put a brave face on when people mm -hmm. came in to, to be nice to me. They, they were coming in, being nice. And I didn't want to be nice back. I just, yep. uh, you know, just leave me alone. But, uh, it, you know, it's, uh, and I remember as well at the beginning, so the doctor that I knew, Dr. Sony, and he, he's a man of few words, and he comes in, and he just goes, you're going to need to dig deep. And then before I could say anything else, he, he just, he just bombarded up the room. I just thought, dig deep. And I thought, we got told to dig deep all the time in the Marines. Dead mm -hmm. easy. Work hard, put one foot in front of the other, switch this off, switch your brain off, and just keep going, keep going until you achieve whatever you're going to achieve. But in this sense, in this scenario, I'm lying there. I mean, brain is just going nuts. It, it's in overdrive, you know what I mean? What about this? What have I, what have I done to myself? What have I done to others? And it, 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 it was just very hard to switch that off and, and you know, and just not be present in the moment because I just, I just needed to mm -hmm. get through this time. But, but for me, you know, you know, I have got a good family and I've got a good uh, support network and it, there was a lot for me to, to, try and, to try and get through this scenario so it's not like my life is totally shit and i'm nothing <clears throat> nothing worthy to come back to uh, that's that's what got me through mate it's it's been a i mean this is probably just scratching the surface of what you've actually been through and experienced but it's been a hell of a roller coaster for you you know plenty of highs they always come with a couple of lows and now what you do is you share this with other people, don't you, through MGR, through a program uh, where you go into schools and you share your story with with the youth of today, talk to them about resilience, run some workshops with them. I mean, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so <clears throat> I'd say that's where we probably first met, uh, maybe five, six years ago. Um, I've just signed, signed back up for this year's. Good. It's it's yeah. it's, a, it's a fantastic thing. So it's run by Blesma, uh, which is the Limbless Veterans, and it, I think it's like a community program. Uh, so it started off by the Drive Project, um, 
And initially it was for, for veterans to come together to share stories and tales of, of personal experience about overcoming adversities and fundamentally, you know, the, the power of being resilient. Mm-hmm. Now, to date, I think we're six years in and we've reached over 100,000 kids. Yep. Uh, that's young people in education. That's first responders. Uh, that's kids in pupil referral units. You know, the, the naughty boys and girls that need to hear our stories. And it's just a win for everyone. You know, we, we come together and us as veterans, we, we get to... It's like confession, isn't it? You know, I've done this, this, and this in the past. I am not proud of this. I'm proud of this. Uh, and this is how we got through it, you know. And hopefully you can learn something through it. So we, we, we go in and we deliver our stories uh, to kids. And, um, yeah, and it, it's, it's, just, it's just a great thing. I, I love it. I'm proud to be part of it. Yeah, like I said just now, I, I did the first two years and then I got – too busy with with work and everything else and now having recently left my job i emailed the guys uh, last month and said look i know you're you're starting again i want to get back amongst it and start doing this again because it's so rewarding you know to stand in front of a a group of of school kids and and tell your story in a in a you know you try and make it humorous and relatable to them through cartoons that are relevant nowadays and all this kind of stuff so they kind of get it but I think it, it's hard, I think, nowadays for children in that they, I don't know how to say this without sounding maybe arrogant, but they, they, they haven't got that many people to look up to. TV is dominated by reality TV trash and Instagram wannabe famous people and, and that's shoved in their face. You know, I've got a 16-year-old daughter who's constantly looking at all these fake social media people and you know, it messes with their heads, you know? So it's to be able to stand in front of kids and share real life stories from real people who have been through real shit times and come out the other side is, is mega rewarding. And hopefully I know it sounds cliche, but if you can change just one life and stick one kid on a positive track from 20 minutes of your day, you know, once in a while, then happy days. But at the moment we're, we're delivering via zoom and online so, you know, at this precise moment, it's going to be a generation of kids who are just going to fall along the wayside, you know, because mm-hmm. they're not in school and because they haven't got positive mentors like teachers and stuff like that and all this social media. Then now more than ever is a time when we need positive and good stories. So we're, we're delivering across Zoom and it's quite funny. So the other day, I had 136 kids and you can see the bottom left-hand side. So I'm delivering away, doing a good story. I look down, one, two, nine, one, two, three. And I'm watching this oh. and I'm like, hey, what, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> you tune back in. The, the good yeah. bit is coming and uh, they'll, they'll switch back in, one, three, six. And it's like, yeah, you come back to my story. <laughs> so, uh, so you can visually see if the kids are liking it or unliking it. I thought yeah. fundamentally, um. Um, I'm here. I'm speaking to 139 kids. I haven't, I haven't drove two hours to go and see you uh, mm-hmm. and stayed in a hotel. And I think you know this this whole lockdown Zoom generation. Sometimes it's not a bad thing. You know the, the amount right. of people that you can reach. Uh, you know you're dipping into everyone's home life and stuff like that. So 
it is a cool it is a cool thing absolutely we should start our own reality tv show mate we'll get a bunch of uh bunch of the invictus lot or whatever and we'll make our own reality show with a something empowering not yeah. running around oiling up our six packs you know what i mean chasing girls in bikinis none of that garbage <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be awesome wouldn't it, why, it if be. not why not and then we'd all have to get back home to our real life at some point so yeah. Uh, yeah yeah but yeah no i'd love that right so as we wrap up mate let's talk about the future ram oh. ram yeah. 2022 race across america have you heard of it i have it is okay. I've, I've i know people that have taken part in it it's a, it's a big 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 long cycle race from uh, oceanside california to maryland in uh, annapolis over 300,000 miles and again with lesma uh, you know i couldn't sing their praises enough they've put a team together so a whole crew of 22 injured veterans the, the, the racing team element is just eight guys, two, two sets of four. And in those two sets of four, you're going to work as a little team nonstop. So one guy on the road at any one time, and we're going to keep cycling, keep going, keep going. And you'll work in, in your little team to get there. So over 3,000 miles, over 175 feet to try and climb. So we're going to try and climb through the Rockies, the Sierra, the Appalachian Mountain, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm no mean hand cyclist. I'm quite a leisure guy, you know what I mean? Let, let me stop, I'll have a frappuccino, and then we'll keep going type thing. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm training with these boys who are, you know, these are mean machines. These, these guys banging out the miles. So uh, it, it's going to be an awesome thing, you know, meant to do it last year didn't happen meant to do it this year it's not going to happen 2022 is going to be a glorious year where mm-hmm. things happen and we're all going to come together um, we're going to we're going to get across we're going to you know um you know it's just going to be a phenomenal experience so yeah ram 2022 i know they do it as a, a regular event are you taking part as a regular event or are you because i know that some guys break the record the other year are you going to go for the record or not no no i mean we we are we are good enough to you know we're, we're training hard you know what i mean but i think the guys that went for the record uh they were they were your top guys at a top elite. level no, yeah. yeah at least and then also I, I hate to use the words it's a journey but it is mm-hmm. it's a journey from from I'm starting off here and I, I want to get there. But some of the guys in our team are, you know, we're, we're, we're each on our own recovery path, but some of the guys, you know, are more than elite. You know what I mean? So I think together, together, you know, we, we will do in eight to 10 days. That That is your, your cutoff time. And we will do a good a good time. But mm-hmm. no, the, the focus is not not trying to bang out records. The focus is can the eight riders and the twenty-two crew all work together and all get there safely. Yeah, yeah, and and enjoy it, mate. Enjoy yeah. it, taking the experience and uh, absolutely. You know, well, mate. Listen, thank you so much. I'm just looking at the clock now. We've been going for like an hour, twenty-five minutes, mate. I could go on all day, but um, yeah. I appreciate you got a, you got stuff to do. You got a family, but thank you for your time, mate. I really, really absolutely. appreciate it. Absolute I, pleasure, Mark. You know, uh, it's just us chinwagging away, you know, be, be, beefing ourselves up a little bit. But I, honestly, I feel, uh, I, I just feel it's good to do. You know, it's good to, it's 
good to talk. It's nice to share experiences. And, you know, if guys are listening to the podcast and feel inspired or, you know, want to make a change, then let's, let's hope they, they do that. That's it, mate. Like we said, with MGR, you go in, you speak to the kids and you hope to make a change in their life. This is what I'm trying to do with this podcast is interview exceptional people that have overcome some serious challenges in their life and inspire people, you know, get it out there, spread the word and uh, help as many people as we can. Pleasure. All right, mate, you take it easy. All right. I'll speak to you soon. Okay. You're all right. Yeah. Thank you, mate. Take care. Cheers, Mark. See you now. Wow. I told you at the beginning, Alex was an exceptional person. And like I said during that podcast, we probably only really scratched the surface. Some of the most interesting things that I've discovered speaking to people on this podcast are the things that seem mundane, the day-to-day challenges, the day-to-day tasks, and the day-to-day difficulties that they have to overcome. But guys, please, 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 please continue to help me grow this podcast by sharing these episodes, leaving comments, subscription, uh, subscribe to the show, share it around, do whatever you can to make people aware of it. Because these people that I speak to and their stories really can go a long way to change mindsets, change perceptions, put things into perspective. And It may sound far-fetched, but I don't think it is in my experience. They may even help change people's lives. Guys, thank you so much, as always, for all of your support. I appreciate it. I love you all. Thank you for everything. And I'll see you on the next episode of the No Limits podcast.